and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub. Series 7, Session 8. It's Thursday, the 25th of November, 2021. Welcome back. Uh, this session is titled Understanding COVID Positive Care Pathways, Part 7, Public Health Orders, Social Care Needs. Uh, today we are going to uh, focus on our social theme and um, on the slide I think you'll notice I've been putting up the um, making sure you ask the question and so I'm delighted that we're going to be welcome um, Aboriginal Project Officer Adam Muir to talk a bit more about that and the importance of that at this time. Well our COVID care series today has focused on clinical risk stratification and clinical care monitoring and care escalation. We have aimed to achieve an understanding of how this clinical care pathway has been implemented through our major health services and we will continue to discuss the role of the smaller regional health services uh, in future echoes and over time. Through our case-based discussions we've been able to consider how to manage patients determined um, to be on low and medium risk pathways and we've considered the clinical care needs through the parallel lens of managing other respiratory viruses in our community. Interestingly, many of the questions that have been coming up in the last few weeks when we've been focusing on low, lower risk patients um, have been more linked to, I guess, the requirements of COVID positive patients to quarantine and also the need to comply with the public health orders. And so this morning, um, and also I guess that then led, led us on to thinking about the social care needs that arise from being in quarantine. So more related on those quarantine and social care orders than the clinical aspects of the case, I guess. Perhaps we're more familiar with some of those clinical aspects because it is paralleling other respiratory viruses. So in this morning session, we'll take a deep dive into the public health orders put upon uh, households, a household living with COVID, and the social care needs that arise for individuals and households with respiratory illness placed under public health orders. We'll be focusing our discussion on the question, what are the health and public health literacy gaps and social care needs um, of patients on COVID care pathways? What is our role in primary care alongside the public health units and remote patient monitoring teams? And going forward, what could a social care response um, coordinated through GP settings look like? And we'll layer this with a cultural lens this morning and consider the needs of First Nations Australians in the event of a COVID-positive member of a household or community. Uh, our community outbreak case discussion this morning will ask the question, how can services and sectors work together to provide culturally and socially responsive care? So let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester, GP, and I'll be hosting this morning's meeting uh, alongside Gemma Misback and Fee Quigley. And thanks to um, Jade and Zach for um, supporting the production of um, materials to disseminate at the end. So um, as we've been doing in the last few weeks, Linda Govan's going to uh, kick it off this morning with a PHN update, followed by Kay Graham to um, provide a we probably jinxed ourselves last week saying there wasn't many changes afoot and then I think later that day a whole swathe came. So Kate's going to bring you up to date with the um, changes in public health um, and a little bit about what's happening vaccines and COVID care. And then uh, we'll welcome uh, Dr. Karen Ahrens uh, from the Grampians Public Health Unit, GP um, and GP liaison um, at uh, Gerowa, um, to uh, discuss public health orders and social care needs of positive um, households. Um, we'll welcome back um, ECHO semi-regular and Amua Aboriginal Project Officer from Westwick PHN and uh, also recently on secondment, I think just back this morning, thanks Adam for joining us so recently back um, from the Barwon Public Health Unit. So, um, he him, um, discussed the, the role that he played there but also um, highlighted our break case discussion. All right, um, I think that's all from me. I'll hand over to you, Linda. 
Thank you, Bianca, and good morning, everybody. <clears throat> good morning. Special good morning to Kim Pointer. I see you're in the audience this morning. Nice to have you join us. Um, just starting with uh, an overall look at our vaccination rates, um, the rates for West Vic PHN continue to strengthen um, with our region leading the way across Australia and within Victoria. From the publicly available data, we are currently at 95% for first doses and 94.9% uh, for second doses. So it's a really great outcome. Just move on to the next slide, thanks, Gemma. For our um, First Nations data, we're doing comparatively well nationally regarding the difference in vaccination rates between First Nations, Western Victorians and other Western Victorians. Um, of course, ideally, there should be no gap. Uh, you'll note in the table the areas that are highlighted that have a more significant gap, which indicates where more focus and effort is needed. Um, throughout the rollout, we've been in contact with the eight Aboriginal community-controlled organisations in our region to offer support, including some moderate funding opportunities. And the National Peak Nacho and the Victorian Peak Nacho have also been active in promoting vaccination, including having vaccines offered via the vaccine ban in regional Victoria to help with access in a culturally safe environment. All right. Yep, I'm going to go jump in yeah. there just for a second, Linda. I <clears throat> just wanted to mention the reason for the asterisks in there. And um, Adam, um, I don't know if you want to pipe in, but um, just uh, whether you wanted to comment, Adam, on the data and that, of course, the data relies on uh, accurate reporting of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander status. What Bianca said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I wanted to make sure I reflected that. Thank you, Linda. Um, over to you again. Yeah, no worries. And again, I guess just for noting for that slide, um, the percentages are for the double dose. So it's it's the combined first and second dose there. Um, thanks, Gemma. Next slide. Um, just in regards to what's happening in aged care, we've got um, 42 private racks in our region will have received their booster clinic um, visit by the end of today. I think that's Thursday, not yesterday. Um, and we've got Aspen and TLC working in our region, as well as the public health units coming in if there's been any outbreaks in the local um, private racks as well. There's been a couple. Um, and as I've said in the last few weeks, um, the private racks can also choose to have a, a GP come on site to do a booster clinic if they want. And just a reminder that Aspen will only do a one visit. So there will be a need to um, just check in to, for the racks that you're working with if they need um, their, any residents to receive a booster dose. Um, I think that's all in regards to that. In regards to PPE, just a preparation for Christmas, if you can um, order up before or by the 1st of December, just to make sure that you have a delivery um, before the Christmas break. And if you think you need more than what we have in our tick boxes, just add a comment in the um, on the ordering page so that you can have more supply than, than than what's indicated there. We'll resume deliveries in January. Of course, if there's any outbreaks in our region in the in the interim period, we'll um, make sure that we have PPE delivered as required. Uh, next slide, thanks, Gemma. Just a handy resource um, that's available um, for patients around proof of vaccination. It's, um, you can order via that email there, but um, yeah, a really handy resource for patients in regards to accessing the uh, digital certificate. Um, I'm also aware that Services Australia are working on a uh, smaller pocket size version of the certificate, which is expected to be available in, a, in the coming weeks. Um, in regards to living with COVID, 
pathways, we, we continue to work with, um, at the moment, mainly Grampians Public Health Unit and Ballarat Health Services in, in, in really working through what those pathways are going to look like. So that's, again, it continues to be a conversation with the Commonwealth and the state and the public health unit. So that's, um, yeah, an ongoing piece of work. I think that's all from me today. Thanks, Bianca. Great. Thanks, Linda. Now I'm freezing this morning. So if I tend to go uh, missing in action, guys, please hand over to each other and Gemma will <laughs> captain the ship. Um, over to you, Kate. So um, as Bianca was saying, it has been a week of change for all of us. And I think um, it's been a difficult sort of ship to sail for the public um, and for all of us. Um I think in terms of COVID safe settings um, across the state, I mean, the most sort of noticeable things are that everything sort of visibly seems back to normal apart from your masks in retail settings. However, in health settings, things remain mostly the same for us. We are seeing in um, increased visits into aged care settings. However, visiting hospitals and aged care still has those restrictions sort of um, in place. Um, we need to think about that a little bit in terms of what that means for additional people coming into um, primary care settings as well um, as they accompany people into our clinics and whether we're still placing any restrictions on that as well. Um, so, Overall, um, the main things that we'll be looking at, um, and I know Karen will be speaking a lot more towards things, um, the, the key change, I think, from my point of view is just the new terminology and getting ahead around things. It's the difference in contacts. So instead of having your primary close contacts, we've got social contacts, workplace contacts, education contacts, um, and just sort of looking at the difference around them. So I'll just go to the next slide. So in terms of primary care as a workplace, what does that mean for us? Um, so for primary care, uh, we do have um, some changes to our matrix and we'll go through that a little bit on the next slide. So when you get this slide deck, um, all of these sort of on the right-hand side of this slide will be links for us um, just to sort of keep up um, in terms of just our standard requirements. Um, there are very minimal changes to all of these kind of basic things, our cleaning, high-touch um, sort of cleaning requirements, because that's sort of your baseline requirements. However, what has changed is the workplace exposure and response. So I'll just go to the next slide. So this is our contact management um, guidance and there's a link to it there so that you can have a look and see what the changes mean in terms of when you get an exposure. But really, the main change in terms of this guidance is about the fact that all of this will now be managed internally by workplaces. Workplaces um, are sort of required to collect contacts um, within that workplace um, and they are required to contact um, workplace contacts um, in the manner um, that they are exposed within the risk matrix. Um, in terms of the bits that are highlighted here, they're the high risk contacts, which are the red zone ones. 
it's mandated that people um, leave quarantine until they receive that negative initial PCR test. The next part of management is where each individual practice um, needs to sort of develop their own plans for what takes place next. The steps following this are recommended. So the recommendations are for daily rapid antigen testing for seven days after exposure. Um, And those rapid antigen tests um, are usually able to be picked up from the PCR testing sites. However, what we find is that that access may be variable at times because sometimes those testing sites may be overwhelmed if there's been a large school exposure or something where a large number of education contacts have popped in and um, cleaned out the supplies. So you may have contacts going in and not be able to access those rat tests. So as an employer, you may need to then think, okay, so if we have staff members who do not have those rat tests, are we going to let them back in? What's our alternative? Do we then have a period of time where for seven days you don't have staff in if they can't access those rat tests? Do you have some stock in place of your own rat tests just to sort of cover people um, so that you can get essential staff back to work? Um, There's also the sort of designation of a high-risk exposure. So potentially you have your own sort of guidance that maybe in terms of some high-risk patients or high-risk sort of exposures within your clinic, um, that there may be times where you don't want people to come back to work for that seven days if you've got a particularly vulnerable population. So I think these are things that you all need to sort of talk about within a practice setting or and also as well, the low risk. It's consider PCR testing 48 hours after the exposure based on risk assessment. And all of this needs to be done internally. Um, But what we wanted to say as well, and um, I'm sure Karen will back us up on this, is that we're not abandoning everyone um, to be managing everything on their own, knowing that this is the first step um, in terms of the time that you'll be managing these exposures um, as a workplace without sort of the public health oversight. So definitely the public health um, the public health guidance and that public health phone numbers that we'll have at the end of this will still be um, there in place to be able to get that guidance from the central public health um, team that manages sort of healthcare exposures and also as well from the local public health units if you have questions in relation to this. But it's really just thinking through as a practice what your plans and policies would be, particularly around the rapid antigen testing. So I'll just go to the next slide. Um, So one of the resources for patients that's going to be really important that I wanted to flag, um, this is the link for the checklist for COVID cases. But if you actually go back to the um, sort of uh, one above that, which is your COVID checklist, there's a checklist for COVID contacts as well. And the checklist for COVID contacts is a really good one because it goes through for each person what type of contact they are. It defines it quite nicely um, and it defines their responsibilities as contacts and cases. Um, So they're really good resources because there are new responsibilities for cases and contacts. um, And that's a hard thing for people to get their head around as well because um, 
people are used to sort of having directions come from above as to what they have to do rather than being self-directed in that initial management. So I'll just go to the next slide. Um, vaccinations, boosters, third doses, boosters, 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 boosters. I think that that is going to be where our efforts need to be focused over the next few months now that we're getting to really high vaccination levels. But as Linda was flagging in the initial sort of slides in terms of the discrepancies and the gap um, between sort of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander first doses, uh, not first doses, um, double doses um, and those vaccination rates compared to non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander first doses, uh, again, I shouldn't speak this early in the morning, um, double dose rates. I think that there are two different things that we need to be focusing on. It's closing gaps in those kind of settings, closing gaps in other vulnerable settings and looking at boosters because waning immunity is going to be a really significant thing as we come up to um, sort of cooler times um, into sort of autumn and winter next year. And if we plan for that now, it's um, better than sort of being caught off guard at that point in time. Um, Pre-submitted questions, expiring Pfizer stock on patients between five to six months and people want everything in writing so that they feel safe to be able to do this. It is in the Atagi clinical guidance, not in the booster guidance itself, um, which is why it's a bit more tricky to find, but it is in their big, long Atagi document. So that is where you will find that piece of helpful guidance, um, but it's for operational reasons. Um, but I think that that will give you that coverage. And I think that expiring Pfizer stock is definitely would fit under the operational reasons. So I'll just go to the next slide. And this is my new favourite slide. Um, it's from the Department of Health and it is from... Um, uh, sort of presentation that I was giving earlier in the week to an education sector. And so this will be um, included in our slide deck as well. It's okay to include. Um, so that's all good. So, um, and I know that Karen will talk to this a lot as well, but it really is a good sort of summary in terms of the new changes, what is mandated and what is recommended. Um, so that sort of just helps everyone to sort of get um, to grips with some of the changes in terms of where you might have to sort of provide guidance, for example, when rat tests aren't available or you've got less than what you expect uh, for some of the contacts and for um, what guidance you might have to provide as a workplace in terms of when you're giving directions. So that's the end of me, but I'll hand over to Karen who's going to go through this in a lot more detail. Thanks, Kate. That was great. So I'm going to do a quick GPHU update and then I'll move on to some information about public health orders and some social care needs. And I might flick back to Kate's slide as well and, and, and poach that, Kate, if you don't mind, and we can use that to talk to because it's a very good slide, I agree. So with regards to the public health unit update, um, in our Grampians region, we've got a little over 100 active cases at the moment. Um, and I wasn't on yesterday, but I understand we've had one of our busiest days. So, so there is activity around across the regions and it's, that's not surprising now that we've got our reduced restrictions. Um, and really, as we've said before, focusing on the numbers is really not 
a productive exercise. It's more focusing on hospital cases and intubations and ICU admissions. And as you've probably been monitoring, they're really reducing enormously and consistently um, finding that those people are predominantly by far unvaccinated individuals. Um, the other thing that's happened in our patch recently is that we've temporarily taken over Moorable, which we had some of before, and now we're including the care of public health care of ba uh, Bacchus Marsh and surrounds. So that's um, new news. Um, following on from what Linda had said, the team, the VAX team, is working hard with the aged care facility booster doses, particularly targeting areas that we know are having pockets of outbreaks of um, increased cases, um, but across the whole region, obviously, as well. Um, rapid antigen tests have been recently delivered out to the various regions so that they've got some. It's um, a little bit uh, grey how the rapid antigen tests are meant to be uh, accessed, um, particularly in the school setting, but um, that's something that we've been working with the regions to make sure that they do have some, particularly for sensitive settings. Um, another change recently is to do with, and this will circle back with regards to the, the types of contacts, but just been an interesting one with regards to the DVR data. So the QRing in is now become an automated process. So basically, if you've been somewhere, you might find your patients are getting texts that are saying, um, I may have been exposed to a case. And so that's because they've QR'd in and a case is QR'd in in a similar space. And when we come back to that other slide, we'll see that it's not, um, there's some mandation, but it's no, there's no quarantine, no quarantine beyond the initial test. Um, the other thing, obviously, that you, I mean, Kate's talked to this before, is the Burnett modelling, which we're watching closely, has, you know, predicted an increase in cases, particularly towards the end of December. So I, I guess that taps into the importance of having, making sure we've got a really good COVID positive pathway set up with clear um, processes and links for primary care so that you guys know how to expect referrals and where to escalate if there are problems and what monitoring is required, etc. And as Linda mentioned, that's we're working with the PHN closely on that at the moment. So um, no changes there at the moment, but watch this space. Um, the other thing, just um, I was interested to hear, look at your slides, Linda, and it was a little disappointing to see the First Nations um, second doses were low in some of the Grampians regions. And we're aware of that. And I um, agree with Adam's comment. There's a bit of work being done looking into the actual stats to see is that accurate? And if it is, then obviously, you know, we're ramping it up. But um, if the, we've got the population data correct or not may impact on those figures. And so I guess time, watch this space again for that because um, obviously that's that's really important. The last thing with, I was going to say with regards to the GPHU update was um, following on from Kate's comment as far as um, not to be too fearful of the it's over to you now and you can manage everything yourselves and um, where I'm taking a holiday. Um, it's not like that at all, sadly, well, sadly for me, but um, we will be still supporting you as much as you need. 
moving forwards, I mean, COVID will become just an endemic uh, disease like the flu over time. And so GPs and health services will be managing these from internally as we're moving towards. Um, and we're finding that different health services and practices are wanting different levels of support and we're perfectly um, happy to to fit in with, with what needs are, particularly in these early stages when it's all a bit changing and confusing. So that's the GPHU update. Um, I'm going to move on now to some information about public health orders, and I'm hoping it's not too dry and theoretical, but when I was talking to Bianca the other day and explaining some of the behind-the-scenes sort of legal thing, legal um, processes and the framework, she, was, she sort of said, oh, that's really interesting, we should talk about that. So if it's boring, I blame Bianca. Um, just kidding. I'm just kidding, Bianca. Um, so... I found it interesting actually researching it a little bit more. So from a governance point of view, you've got your Department of Health and then you've got your COVID-19 division that sits under that and then your ICOM branch, which is case contract and management, sits under that. And then you've got your LPHUs. So there's nine of those and you know two of them particularly, which are Barwon and Grampians. And within the LPHUs, there's a number of authorised officers. So they're individuals who've done some training um, to understand the legal requirements of uh, carrying out directions. Now, sidestepping to directions. So when we're in a state of emergency, uh, which, which there's varying classes, but when we're in the current state of emergency, there is the authority um, and responsibility falls to the CHO, Chief Health Officer, for the direction setting. And so when we, the direction setting and the ones you'll be most familiar with are things like you must isolate for X number of days after receiving a positive test or, um, you know, you must quarantine as a close contact. Um, they're set by the show but can be implemented and um, as a direction to the individuals in question. And some directions that you'll be less familiar with include things like a direction to clean an exposure site or a direction to provide contact lists for your patients or, or if it's an employment uh, place, list of staff contacts, etc. And a number of these, or most of these are legal legal requirements. So that's why Kate's put that slide earlier where it's mandated versus recommended where it says mandated there's been a direction written for that and so when you're talking with your patients thanks Gemma when you're talking with your patients if they've received um, a direction from an authorized officer and that can be in a text or an email or verbally um, that's actually legally binding and so they can be fined if they breach that requirement or that, sorry, that direction. So that's kind of that that summary. And so as it sits at the moment, the main form of communication is text to patients, um, noting that there are some limitations to that um, with regards to tech savviness, English speaking, and access to technology. But nonetheless, that seemed, that's the main way. All cases will receive a text at time of um, positive case, and that will include a direction. And at the moment, the direction is that you are, well, obviously there's advice, you are a case, but also the direction will include the 10 days from date of test, and it's a passive clearance now. So um, Gemma, if you want to pop that slide back up, it can just sit in the background for now. I think it's actually probably quite a useful one. Um, so that's a passive 
a passive thing. So basically your patients now, once they hit day 10, the end of day 10, they are then cleared from um, their isolation period. Um, the other thing which uh, Kate's touched on is your, is your contacts. And this has gotten a little bit confusing now, obviously, because there's different groups with vaccination and unvaccinated but in a household setting, there's now there's now three main household uh, close contacts, and they come under household contacts, household light contacts, or contacts that have been in a residential setting for more than four hours with in a positive individual, and they all fall together basically. And if in vaccinated state, they um, need to isolate quarantine for seven days, um, and. And in an unvaccinated, that's for 14 days. And something else that's changed in, is that where you would have a six, day six test, and all this is mandated so far that we've talked about, that I've talked about, where you'd have a day six test, you needed to wait till the end of day seven before you were cleared. Now, as soon as you get your day six negative or in the unvaccinated population, the day 13 negative, you're cleared for, for clearance, for you're cleared to, from quarantine. So. Those are just some of the um, the interesting household ones. The other one that um, has been popped up here and is a little confusing, but um, is to do with children. And so if you're under 12 years, and it's actually 12 years and two months, as it turns out, because if it's, they're giving a two-month buffer for ability to get vaccinated, but let's say 12 years for the argument for the conversation. So if you're under 12 years and you have a whole household of vaccinated people, then you're treated as a vaccinated individual, despite the fact that obviously under 12s won't be vaccinated. If you're under 12 years in a household and, and even one of those household members is unvaccinated then that child will be treated as a um as an unvaccinated individual and required to quarantine for the full 14 days with a day 13 negative test so there's some of the main differences at the moment with households i wanted to run through a few special areas so rolling quarantine you've probably heard of rolling quarantine in the past where one person would be positive and then the next person in the household so that reset everybody's quarantine period and then another one would turn positive etc etc resulting in really long periods of quarantine in the home this is not new now it's probably been dealt with before but i just sort of re-emphasize that that is no longer the case so people who are quarantining so long as they have a day negative a day six negative test if they're vaccinated or day 13 if they're not and um they take their day zero from basically the time that the case, their last, their first exposure, or sorry, with that case. So basically the whole household quarantines for the, the same period of time and will have a day six test, unless any of them obviously become positive in the meantime, different scenario. So what that eliminates is these really long periods of time where individuals are quarantining, which was, which was not good for anybody. And I, th I believe the rationale behind that is that if you're going to have become positive living in a household with a positive case, whether another one drops and another one drops throughout that period of quarantine, if you're going to have become positive by day six or day 13, you will have done so as a result of that initial case. So that's that. Another special point I wanted to mention was about refusal to test. So if you've got individuals in your in the households who are at day six or 13 and refusing to test and they're, they've got a right to do that, we can't mandate uh, testing. Well, 
it's it's part of a direction but like vaccination you can't actually force a swab up somebody's nose and that's not legal um so they do have the right to refuse but the implication of that is that they then need to quarantine for an additional 14 days in the instance of an unvaccinated individual so that and that is mandated so they will be in quarantine for 28 days in total so it's a bit of a disincentive but um that sits there as well um, one of the things that you guys will come in contact sometimes, especially if you're looking after low risk cases is if they're con uncontactable. Um, and there is a process for that, but from a, from a GP point of view, your, your best bet's probably just getting in touch with the local public health unit. And, um, you know, in, in a smaller community, you might have things in place where you could, um, have someone do a safe, a risk-free door knock or ring another family member or find a creative way to try and check that that person is okay because um, there's the clinical side and there's the compliance side obviously and both are important but bottom line is you, you can ring the local public health unit and and um, we can set a process up for uh, checking there's a there's a few ways we can do that ultimately if we can't get in touch with them the police can get involved and do a door knock for us and we're happy to facilitate that um Another thing that's come up is um, when we talked about it being a legal requirement, so these are legally binding directives, You can, there is room for exemption. So it needs to be documented and delivered by an authorised officer from a public health unit. But there are, so for example, people, we've had people who've needed to move, they're about to move house or they're about to be evicted because their rentals run out. Um, and so, so long as we can figure out a way to do that in a risk-free way, that is possible, um, but it needs to be done in a, in a controlled and a legal way and a supported way, and we can help with that if that comes up. Um, all right. Oh, now the other new one, which you may or may not have come across, is that the contact after clearance. So what is a positive case? So one of the, the loopholes, or not loopholes, but sort of exclusions, if you like, for being a positive case is if you um, test positive 90, within 90 days of already being a positive case, that's not considered to be a new positive. Likewise, if you come into contact close contact with a positive case within 90 days of being yourself being a positive case, you're not required to mandatorily quarantine as per others would. So you're just, you're considered to be not a close contact in that setting. So that's a really important one. We're getting a lot of questions about that and you may as well. Um, the last one is, the last thing on this is to talk about false positives. So we routinely get people saying how my 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 relative or i can't possibly be a positive because i'm asymptomatic um clearly that's not the case but people then duck off and get another test and occasionally that comes back as a negative um now you don't need to be you don't need to do any of this because obviously we'll um, carry this out but i find i think for you guys it's really handy to understand the processes because you will get questions about this um the only time that we might consider a positive being a false positive, it requires a, 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 a low pretest probability for starters. And so the majority of um, the ones we're looking at are already high 
pretest probability. So they don't fit. And then they need to have at least two negative tests within the, the following 48 hours of a positive. So anyway, we don't need to go into details on that, but it was just worth mentioning. Um, Bianca, I'm going to move on to social care needs now, I think. Did you want to um, stop for a moment there? Oh, look, I think we'll move on. I'm just conscious of time and bringing Adam on as well. But Adam, um, you'll be right. Um, I think the key piece that in terms of implementation, and I guess, Lee, this is coming back to the question that you asked last week, you know, when we have a household and we're managing and monitoring and there's questions about these public health orders. Uh, I love that what Karen's saying is essentially, you know, potentially we could implement it by saying, well, have you, you've had a text because they will have had a text, Karen reassures us. Um, what does it say? And, and now that we're quite clear that that's a direct directive um it still is between the public health unit it's not up to gps is it to um you know um no and it's really important to emphasize that and also um moving on to the social care social care needs uh, with the public health role that is our responsibility and we're happy to take that but we're also happy for it to be a shared venture with the discussions but from an actual the legal perspective that's right bianca yeah. yeah okay so as long as we're helping basically support people's understanding and translating that information letting them know that it is a directive so that there is a, a legal element to that and they could be fined i guess is that it's it's up to them as to whether to decide whether to break the law or comply with the law but it is the law um yeah. whereas as you would have seen the highlights on some of the matrixes where the words softer like consider or recommended um it, that's all it is. It's not a directive. and Correct. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. And that's a nice segue into social care needs because I think if we can support the individuals that need to be isolating and quarantining with from a social wraparound point of view, it makes it easier for them to be able to comply with those directives. Um, so I've just, these are just some links for you guys to use, but um, I guess this is an interesting one where the GP role comes in. So especially in smaller communities or, or, or your bigger towns, to have an understanding of what's available. Um, these, these links pretty much can all take you to the same sort of sites. Um, but just quickly, and yeah, I are looking at time too, so I will ramp up. Um, very happy to be contacted at the public health unit if you need health help but some of the things to consider are some some accommodation so there's rental re rental relief available um there's if if a case really is can't quarantine or isolate there are we can look into hotel quarantine for accommodation for contacts who need to be removed from a household for any reason, um, there is some uh, Ballarat based uh, emergency accommodation for quarantining individuals. Um, lots of councils and Red Cross in areas have got food packs and ability to, to transport medication. And so some of those links there will take you to those or you can just go to the Red Cross um, website. I had a little look today to see what was the latest because as you know, it's ever changing with financial support. It still has on the website that there's the Commonwealth COVID disaster payment, but I'm pretty sure now that we've hit 80, 90% that has gone. Um, but there are still numerous payments for people that you can direct them to via, and that site there for the finance one will take you there. So there's, if, you've, if you're positive and you're unable to tap into annual leave or sick leave or what have you, um, and if you've had a test, there's a, I think there's still a $450 quarantine, um, awaiting test result payment. For children who have nowhere to go, if their parents are too unwell to care for them with COVID, 
Um, in the Ballarat region, there's Family First, which is a uniting church initiative. Um, so that's obviously looking for family members in the first instance, but um, there are some options there. And then if absolutely urgent down in Melbourne, Latrobe Private is the next step. Um, but you'd, all of this would be through the public health unit. So really happy to support that. Um, but it's handy for you guys to know that it exists. Um, there's some links there to some mental health supports and family violence supports. Oh, that's an important one, actually. Those legal requirements, those directives, there are um, uh, not exemptions. There are exceptions to the rule. Um, and so, obviously, family violence. If if you're unsafe, that would clearly be, um, or you know, your house is on fire. Anything that's unsafe um, is an exempt is an exception to the rule and would not require would not result in any sort of fine whatsoever. Um, the only other thing I was going to sort of mention, and I may regret it because we don't want to get an influx of this, but in extreme circumstances, I've had to write uh, exemptions for people with severe mental health issues. Um, and we have had this happen in disability settings too, where there's been a need the, the risk of harm and damage to someone being quarantined for 14 days has outweighed the other, other the, the the other risks, and so there is room sometimes for exemptions to be able to go out, say, for a walk around the block in a safe, controlled fashion. Um, if it was absent, that's an extreme set situation. But do keep in mind because you will have that happen sometimes where you've got patients who are just you know unsafe and needing to breach their directives, but not feeling that they can because of the legal requirements. So feel free to have a talk to us about that. I think that's it. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. Thank you so much, um, Adam, for coming today. Thank you, Karen, for your um, advice. Of course, to Kate and Linda. Um, thanks all for coming. Please do evaluate us. We have two sessions left, so we hope we'll stick, you'll stay with us until uh, our uh, end of season. Um, we're going to next week come back to you with um, post-COVID. So we're going to end the pathway. What happens after the pathway? And this is where I suspect they'll be coming back to GPs. Are we going to do a six-week check? What are we going to be asking for? Um, this is where I think GPs will probably first find themselves involved with COVID is in those discharge pathways. So what's all that about? And then um, in the final... Um, oh, sorry, sorry. In the final session on the 9th of December, um, I want you to get your questions ready because I'm delighted to uh, let you know that we'll have um, a very special guest, um, an old friend and someone who's now working up the road. I won't officially announce it yet until we have it all in writing, but get your questions ready for our uh, one of our uh, 2020 ECHO regulars. Um, so we'll finish off on, the de uh, on December the 9th. So I hope we'll stay with us then, until then. And um, until then, uh, we'll see you next week. Catch you later. And thanks, everyone, for your contributions. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network. And you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions. And you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.